one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to a brand new season of Talking Space. This is Talking Space episode, and I never thought in a million years I'd be saying this, episode 1001 for the week of Monday, January 15th, 2018. Just to clarify, as I always like to do at the beginning of every season, that episode number that does not mean it is our 1,001st episode, as cool as that would be. We just hit 250 last season. The first number, or in this case two numbers now, represent the season number, and the last two numbers represent the episode number. So that means this is episode 1 of season 10 of Talking Space. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is the Talking Space founder himself, Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. If you would have told me back in 2009 we'd still be doing this right now, I'd, I, I would be highly skeptical, but I'm really, really pleased to be here, and I hope uh, everybody else is sticking around to hear some more Talking Space for, uh, for this year. I'm looking forward to it. We hope so, too. We hope you stick around, and we hope all of our new listeners enjoy the show as well, because we've got... Some amazing things already planned for 2018, and it is going to be a great year for Talking Space, and I personally think a great year for space, because there's a lot scheduled to happen this year. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> had to do that. Margaret Atterman will be out for a little bit of the beginning of the season as he works with his robotics program, although he will be joining us for a special a little bit later this season. In addition to that, Kat Robison, who normally joins us, is out sick with the flu, and we hope that she feels better and will join us again for the next episode. Missy Cat, get better. Same. Feel better, Cat. And Mark, good luck with your robots. So in the meantime, let's get into our space news, though, because the last two episodes have all been our Houston special, so we've got a lot to catch up on. So we will start with SpaceX, and we will begin with the CRS-13 mission which successfully launched back in December, bringing supplies and science to the International Space Station. Well, that previously flown Dragon capsule just this past week successfully returned back to Earth, splashing down Saturday afternoon in the Pacific Ocean, carrying with it over 4,100 pounds, I'm sorry, I don't have the metric conversion on hand, uh, of science, unwanted supplies, and parts, and things to return. Keeping in mind that as of this very moment, SpaceX is the only commercial supply vehicle that will allow for down mass, meaning returning things back to Earth. Yeah, so there are a couple of these uh, experiments that came back. One was a, a maiden space fiber optics payload. Uh, another one was a, uh, a couple of experiments for, uh, for CASIS. One of the other ones, too, was a, uh, another uh, experiment called Apex-5, which studies stress re reactions on plants when you know, they experience... Uh, uh, hypoxia basically reduced uh, oxygen supply so they wanted to go ahead and see what occurs during times of soil flooding and so on and so forth that might be able to go ahead and help us down here deal with uh, deal with plants as well and of course the infamous rodent research uh, that was also uh, I believe this was rodent research study number six uh, that was also uh, returned. Uh, this is a muscle study that is studying microgravity on rodents and in turn on us. Uh, and Sawyer, as you pointed out, the uh, the dragon, the the cargo dragon, excuse me, is the only vehicle that can return equipment from the International Space Station that the United States currently has 
believe, to the spacecraft splashed down in, in the Pacific and was on its way to McGregor to surrender the experiment packages over to NASA. Exactly, and they're also great about once it splashes down, getting it back quickly because a lot of that is time sensitive. And yes, it does have fridges and freezers on board to help with some of that science, but the sooner it can get into a scientist's hands, the better. So another successful mission under the belt for Dragon. We'll be looking forward to seeing what uh, Cargo Dragon does this year. Of course, too, we've got uh, another two uh, Cygnus launches coming up this year as well. So it's going to be an exciting year from when it comes to uh, space station logistics. Exactly. And within the next year or two after that, we'll also be Sierra Nevada joining in with their Dream Chaser cargo vehicle. So That's true, Sawyer. And uh, just to while we while we were gone, uh, NASA went ahead and confirmed, by the way, with the report that we just uh, we did uh, just before the break, Sierra Nevada did their drop tests. And uh, we reported on that a little bit here toward toward the end of the last program. And uh, everything went uh, wonderfully or less or at least they thought it did because of what they were looking at. NASA went ahead, looked over the data, and confirmed that indeed Sierra Nevada had uh, metal milestones and was free to continue on with uh, the Dream Chaser uh, studies. So uh, it's going to be an exciting year for them, too. They've they've got, I believe, the, they want to get uh, this thing going sometime in 2019. So they've got a lot of work ahead, ahead of them, but I'm sure they're going to be up to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's going to be a busy time on ISS because don't forget, there's still also the progress resupply vehicles. There's still Soyuz vehicles with manned missions. Uh, We've got commercial crew that is getting ready to finish their testing this year and hopefully have launches. It seems like at this point by 2019, but that's a whole nother story. Um, But a lot going on with the ISS and also coming up are two spacewalks. Uh, They will be working to repair or at least service, the Canadarm2, that is the robotic arm aboard the International Space Station. Those two spacewalks are scheduled for January 23rd and January 29th. Mark Vandehei will lead both excursions, joined by Flight Engineer Scott Tingle for the spacewalk on January 23rd, and by Flight Engineer Norishige Kanai, uh, from JAXA on the 29th. Again, as Sawyer uh, indicated, this is uh, to go ahead and take a look at the robotic arm, which has experienced some uh, some degradation, according to NASA, of some of its snaring cables. Um, and uh, they're going to go ahead and take a look at that. Uh, there's also a few other, I guess, some other get-ahead tasks I want to do, but but the focus is going to be the uh, uh, Canada arm and making sure the Canada arm, too, is operational and working just fine. Exactly. Just like you do regular maintenance on your cars, they do regular maintenance on robot arms. So, mm-hmm. you know. All right. Uh, so we're going to stick with SpaceX for this next story, and that is the Falcon Heavy is real. It is alive. It is currently <laughs> out on Launch Pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center. The rocket, though, we've been talking about for about half as long as this program has been on the air. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Since pretty much. Way back till 2012. Is finally a reality. It is on the launch pad, and they are getting ready for the static fire test. They have been attempting the static fire test for about a week or so, but with any new rocket for the first time, there's always going to be little kinks and things that need to be worked out, as they discovered. Uh, They've had multiple attempts, including one which allowed them to begin fueling the rocket. So although that one did not actually have an engine ignition, as they were hoping for, they are able to use that as what's called a wet dress rehearsal, meaning they do everything that they would normally do with the static fire, except, you know, fire the engines. They're hoping to have a static fire test, possibly by the end of this week, pending a launch out of the Cape, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. But they're trying for it. The initial goal was to have the launch by the end of January, Although at this rate, beginning of February, is looking very promising. Yeah, Sawyer, they actually made an attempt today, as I said, as we record this, it's Tuesday, January 16th. Uh, They've been trying to make some other attempts to to, do a a firing of the engines. And a lot of the media over there are are saying, yeah, we want to see the the fire and the fury and all that. We want to see all these engines light. Well, yeah, I do too. But you got to remember too, gang, this is an experiment. And this is the first time they're ever loading this beast up with fuel first off. So they are 
SpaceX is actually uh, I'm actually applauding them here. They're 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 really really taking their time to go ahead and make sure that they've got a good uh, uh, a good situation going here and to make sure that they fully understand how you know the uh, inner fluids on board the core stages work because again this is not something that you could you could do on on the spur of the moment. I explained to a few people on on Twitter that uh, as somebody said, and this is a quote from someone, and I don't remember the individual's name, so I do apologize. About a million things can happen when you turn on a rocket engine, and only one is the favorable result. So you want to make sure that everything is in order and making sure you get that favorable result. Nobody wants a bad day here. And yeah, it, the fire and the fury is great. I mean, shoot, we just had a RS-25 engine test today, too, that was also the first one that NASA performed. Everything apparently went well uh, from a preliminary standpoint. But um, uh, with with this, they're being really careful. This is this is a real big beast, and, and we want to make sure that uh, we, we don't have a bad day here. And uh, they are really, really doing this by the numbers. So I applaud them in taking the caution that they have been taking with this. And uh, everybody else is just going to have to sit tight and, and sip the coffee and eat the popcorn and just wait because um, it, it, that, that's just the, just the way it goes, guys. Welcome to spaceflight. Patience, everyone. Patience, grasshopper. <laughs> exactly. And I've had people ask me, it's like, so what's the big deal? Why can't they just fire it up? What's, you know, it's basically just three Falcon 9s. So shouldn't they know this already with the Falcon 9? And like you said, it's. It's not just three Falcon 9 strapped together. It's a brand new beast all its own, and it takes time. And, you know, it's not like this is rocket science. Oh, wait, it is. Exactly, Sawyer. I mean, that's what kind of got, got SpaceX into trouble to begin with, saying, oh, well, shoot, it's just three Falcon 9 strapped together. This is, you know, what's what's the what, what can possibly go wrong? Well, as, you know, Gwen Shotwell said, well, we found out it was a lot more than just three Falcon 9 strapped together. And, and this is one of the reasons why it's taken so long. Um, I always thought when this thing was first introduced, I believe it was in, in 2012, the initial launch date was going to be the end of that year. And they were going to do it out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. And I just sat there and I said, that's being way too optimistic. And lo and behold, I, I hate to say I was right, but I was right. Here we are, you know, what, 2018, and the thing's finally a reality. It's finally on the pad. But, you know, 2012, 2018, you know, do the math. That's how long it took to get from conception to, to the launch pad. And once you light those things up, again, you want to make sure that that one result is the favorable one. And uh, I'm wishing everybody all the best over there. I know the folks at uh, SpaceX have been working their tails off over on Pad 39A, 39A to make sure things are going well. But, uh, you know, again, everybody, including some members of the press that I've seen out there on Twitter, I'm not going to name, name names, but I know everybody's really, really eager to see this thing light. Heck, I am, too. I want, you know, it, it's it's going to be more, you know, fire and fury than uh, um, that than Pad 39A has seen since, what, SDS-135. Or for that matter, even going back since, you know, Saturn V. Yeah, exactly. But, um we want to make darn sure that, that everything works, and we want to make darn sure that, that we have a good day once we get a launch commit and a lift off. And that's what I think SpaceX is working toward. Exactly. And again, just a fun fact here. Uh, when it comes to this static fire, their static fire tests are only just a few seconds. This will be a 12-second engine burn, strapped down to the pad, of course to test this rocket out, which is unheard of. And there's a chance that they may be doing two of these static fires ahead of a launch to be extra sure. Just all the precautions and everything they're doing because this rocket is so unique and we haven't seen anything like it in a very long time. So uh, this is one where it's going to be worth the wait. Yeah, I've, I've heard actually two numbers, 12 and 15 seconds. So it's... Uh... Uh, you know, we're hoping that uh, even if it's even if it's just 12 seconds, it's still going to be 12 seconds of, of, of rumble and it's going to be exciting and all that. But keep in mind, too, the real work is afterward. 
You want to study how everything performed, how everything worked, and to make sure that uh, you know you've got a good high confidence level in uh, in the launch. So uh, fingers crossed. Hopefully everything goes. And um, any predictions, Sawyer? I hate to say this, go out on a limb here. Uh, as far as when you think uh, we're finally going to get this beast off the ground and uh, Mr. Musk's uh, little automobile on its way. Well, I think since we all love SpaceX so much, I'm going to go with Valentine's Day. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a little op- optimistic. I'm going to go toward the end of February because I, I have a funny feeling they're going to want to run the numbers really, really, uh, really well. But uh We'll see. Whenever that may be, I have worked it out with my day job. And yes, in case you're wondering, this isn't our full-time jobs. I have worked it out so that uh, I will be down for Falcon Heavy. So Talking Space will be covering Falcon Heavy's first launch, hopefully. I'm glad you're going to be there because I was hoping that, that uh, somebody from uh, from the team was going to be able to be available and get down there for the uh, for the launch for that Um I'm I'm hoping that uh, you've gonna you're gonna have your audio recorder ready for us and and we'll go ahead and and deliver the the sound and fury of that thing because it's gonna be it's gonna rock I'll tell you it, it really is gonna rock rock everybody's world down there. I'll make sure I bring spare batteries then. Oh please do <laughs> please do. Oh if only you guys actually knew this it really <laughs> did happen during one launch. Oh really? Yes. We'll, we'll talk later. Uh, the work that we put in to make sure you guys get a great show. If only you knew, but we'll be there to cover it. And of course, we are hoping for the absolute best for SpaceX, and we will keep a very close eye on this mission. So we're going to stick again with SpaceX as we now get into our launch roundup. So uh, one of the more recent launches was another SpaceX launch. That one aboard the Falcon 9 rocket was delayed all the way back from November, first due to weather, then due to looking into a fairing issue, uh, and this mission was called Zuma. Now, you might have heard of it, because we've talked about it quite a bunch on this show after its previous launch attempts, and Zuma was a classified payload. All we knew was that it was for some branch of the military, is what we had originally heard, uh, that it was being built by Northrop Grumman and launched by SpaceX into low Earth orbit. That is all that we know we were then able to see the launch itself and that launch did successfully take place from space launch complex 40 at cape canaveral air force station on january 7th at 8 p.m eastern time the first stage separated away and landed safely back down at landing zone one as for the second stage the engines fired shut off when they were supposed to according to spacex and what happened after that is still up in the air. From what we have heard from sources within the Pentagon and from the U.S. government itself, there is a heavy belief that Zuma was lost. The initial report was that it was still attached to the second stage of the Falcon 9 when it shut down, did not separate away, and burnt up on re-entry along with the stage. Now, the stage is meant to burn up. The satellite, or whatever Zuma was, obviously is not supposed to burn up. It's supposed to end in low Earth orbit. According to Robin Siemengal, who you heard on the last episode from his article for Wired Magazine on it, the separating mechanism between the second stage and the Zuma payload was designed by the satellite manufacturer north of Grumman. It is believed that that is what failed. However, since this is a classified mission, north of Grumman refuses to comment. The only comment that we do have is from SpaceX and Gwyn Shotwell there, who flat out said the rocket performed exactly as planned. Yeah, Sawyer, this started out really, really interesting because I think we were both kind of looking at the uh, the launch itself, and um, uh, it it went off just fine. In fact, I played back the uh, the launch coverage on there, and and the uh, commentator indeed said that the second stage did ignite. While they were well, waiting for the uh, you know the downlink for the for the first stage, and they followed the first stage down. Um, then after that, it's anybody's guess. Uh, what uh, I know what uh, uh, ULA does when they they go ahead and, and launch a secret payload. In fact, uh, we'll we'll get into that uh, a little later. But what they do is they they wait a few discrete few hours and make an announcement saying, "Yep, it's in orbit," and and that's all you hear about. 
Um, in this case, that announcement never, never came. And uh, there were two reporters I was watching. One of them was um, Eric Berger from uh, RS Technica. And he was coming down saying, yeah, we think this thing, you know, maybe toast. And everybody was like, oh, boy, here we go. And um, not long after that, you know, the the statement was uh, put out by, by Gwen Shotwell and and SpaceX basically saying that on their their end everything looked fine, and hearing anything to the contrary was you know balderdash, and um, that's all that she could comment about it because of the nature of the payload. Um, somebody on Twitter, and I forget who it was, posted uh, a photograph that was taken. Oh, good Lord, I want to say somewhere around, around the North Africa, Sawyer. From an airplane, correct? Right, exactly. It was just this dot with these two spirals around it. And uh, according to what was said, that this was probably the second stage of of, uh, of the Falcon 9. You know, so who knows after that? Uh, and then not too long after that, the finger pointing began. Uh, Northrop Grumman has not commented on this. Um, SpaceX has said their their piece. In fact, uh, uh, there was a a mention of it over at the over at the Pentagon. They shut it down, um, pretty much. Uh, with uh, with uh, their somebody was over there their line line of questioning, and I want to say that their uh, spokesman, Lieutenant General. Uh, Kenneth McKenzie, who is director of operations for the Joint Chief of Staff, basically said, I'm done. We're not going to be able to give you any more information, and that's it. So I'm not too sure even this was—I'm not even too sure this was a military satellite. We don't even know what the nature of this thing really, really was. And for all we know, um, this— could have been just some sort of experiment package and it performed what it was supposed to do so there's a really good wrap-up of the whole thing in um in the space review if anybody goes ahead and 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 reads that um jeff faust who uh, also writes for space news that's uh, his uh his his blog if you just go to it um there's a really 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 clear uh, piece on there called the mystery of zuma um and if you just uh, browse over to the spacereview.com it basically tells the whole story about what what was being talked about what was being seen and so on and so forth um i do know a few other people came to to spacex's defense uh one of them iridium ceo matt deutsch who's always been there he's been been animate as far as backing them up even but you know he doesn't have all the information so i was kind of you know i was kind of wondering what that was all about i think it was just basically out of loyalty that he went ahead and did that um because even the 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 uh, space review article says you know this is a typical industry smear job you know on an upstart that's trying to disrupt the launch industry uh they didn't have you know spacex didn't have the failure northrop grumman did um but uh, he later said he didn't know for certain what the failure was <laughs> or if it really was the fault of North Grumman and what happened. But he just reached the conclusion through, quote, process of, of elimination, close quote. So we really don't know, in all honesty, what happened to this payload. And to be blunt, we may never know because of the nature of this thing. But one of the things that I really, really want to go ahead and explore here, and it, it was also, I'm going to go back to a, a Space News article uh, written by Sandra Irwin on January 11th. And uh, at the end of this, um, she quotes a source that she had um, that sort of supposes that uh, this may have been just simply an experiment. Um an, an experiment package of some sort that an unnamed government agency was performing and uh, not an operational payload. Um, in, in this particular source's uh, eyes, if it was an operational payload, ULA would have gotten a nod to launch this thing. The way this individual said that this had to be an experiment because you know SpaceX launched it. Um, and not ULA. 
which I found kind of interesting too. Why pick, you know, SpaceX for the experimental package over ULA? My bet is it was probably something that they wanted very, very quickly. So if you remember, this thing just appeared on the payload manifest for SpaceX. It just sort of magically, you know, combusted, if you will, on on the uh, on the docket. I believe it was what, October? It was three weeks before the scheduled launch date. All of a sudden, every single one of us in the space reporting community just started messaging each other going, wait, did SpaceX just add another launch? It came seemingly out of nowhere. At least it felt like it. So it was it was very quick. And again, you know, it could be experimental. And the fact that if it is experimental, are you going to want to pay all that extra money to go on an Atlas or a Delta, considering how much SpaceX has dropped the cost. Well, the other other thing too that I was going to mention too is that SpaceX is you know known for their agility; they can get things going very very quickly. And obviously, the whoever this entity was, they wanted this thing done and wanted it done fast. And SpaceX was able to go ahead and accommodate and respond. Um, which is probably really the reason why it why it flew on 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 the SpaceX vehicle. Um, ULA, I'm not I'm not bashing ULA here. ULA has been you know that they're they're darn good at what they do, but uh, I think SpaceX they wanted something done very very you know for lack of a better phrase very very down and dirty very very quick and very very cheaply and as you pointed out. And SpaceX can go ahead and 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 roll that out for you and get get it done very fast. So I think that was one of the other reasons why too that that SpaceX was selected for this mission. But it might have been again an experiment package that well didn't go too well, or maybe it did. We don't know. But uh, as far as really really what happened here, uh, who knows? And it's going to be a, I think it's going to remain a mystery for for at least a, a a long time. I mean, shoot, there are shuttle astronauts that flew. Mat- military flights that still can't say anything about the payload that they carried up and deployed and trust me i've asked some of them i've tried they're still keeping closed about it exactly so we may never know really what this thing was all about and what this payload was all about the only people that know about about even the nature of this thing are probably somebody over at Northrop Grumman or somebody at SpaceX and, you know, because they're in a position of trust, can't go ahead and say what this was. So, you know, who knows? It might show up on WikiLeaks some months from now. Who knows? All we do know, again, is according to SpaceX's own statement, the Falcon 9 performed exactly as planned. And again, you know, some of us were wondering, are they going to take a look at the falcon heavy then push it back make sure everything works with that but again if the rocket worked fine they apparently have no need to look at it so that's why they're continuing to push on you know within less than a week after the launch they were already getting ready for that static fire test out of 39a so yeah and again i think SES has got a flight with them in the not too distant future uh, i think too that's the part of that uh uh SES, uh communications satellite there's also a nasa experiment on on board uh that is studying the uh the upper atmosphere so that that's going to be exciting to see what happens but it's also the first time that um nasa has a uh an experiment flying on a commercial payload uh but that's that i think is is something that spacex is preparing and they wouldn't be gearing up for that if they didn't feel confident enough uh in their systems uh that uh, they were not uh, not involved, but I'm sure that maybe, perhaps, and I'm I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here. Maybe two. The reason why they're they're postponing uh, uh, Falcon Heavy is to make sure they've got all their ducks in a row and they've got confidence in that system as well, and making sure that you know the couplings work and all this. It's probably it would be in the back of my mind, um, but. Um, uh, that that's probably something that they're also looking at as well. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say yes or no on that one, but because uh, I'm not there, I'm not in in uh, you know I'm not in in the space control room looking at these things. So, but if I were them, it it would be I, I would just still look at it. I know that's what we that was kind of a debate I was having with a bunch of people on Twitter is 
whether it was the Rockets built or not, do you still take a second look at the second stage just in case? Because to be perfectly honest, that's been SpaceX's biggest issue of all of their failures up to this point, of which there aren't that many, but all of their failures so far have been second stage related. So, Yeah, and just to play devil's advocate, I believe uh, there was a report issued by, uh, by NASA through their uh, aerospace uh, uh, safety board indicating, too, that they are also working with SpaceX for, um, I know SpaceX is starting, was using composite tanks and so on. Uh, both NASA and SpaceX are looking at uh, a replacement for those composite tanks to make sure that, you know, the, the second stage uh, integrity is uh, is still good on those, on, on those vehicles. Exactly. Either way, though, SpaceX is in a great position. Again, they've got plenty of launches coming up. They got the Falcon Heavy and another one currently scheduled for February. So they're in a great position to have an amazing 2018. They almost hit 20 launches last year. And to be honest, I think this year they can do it. Yeah, I believe they're 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 thinking thirty this year, and I I thought that's a little bit ambitious. Uh, they just about hit the mark last year on twenty, but we'll see what happens. Well, uh, my bet is is we'll probably see twenty launches out of them this year. Agreed. And you can always send us your thoughts on how many launches you think they'll hit this year. I'd love to see what you guys think SpaceX is going to accomplish. Uh, you can always send it to us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Facebook and Twitter, we are Talking Space, as well as on Google+. And you can always use the Contact Us page on our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com. And don't forget, we are now on TuneIn Radio, folks. All right, so we're going to continue our launch roundup now. And this one, we're going out to California and Vandenberg Air Force Base. And we'll go out to quite the historic launch pad, out to Space Launch Complex 6. For those of you who might remember, that was originally going to be a space shuttle launch pad. Although, unfortunately, that did change after the Challenger accident. However, now it is being used by United Launch Alliance, and they successfully launched a Delta IV Medium 5-2, rolls right off the tongue, so we'll go with the Delta IV, on January 13th. That successfully took off at 2.11 p.m. Pacific time, which was the local time there, 5.11 Eastern or 22.11 GMT. The mission was the NROL-47 mission, another one of those clandestine missions for the National Reconnaissance Office. That one, if you've seen a launch of a Delta IV, it's quite unique in that it literally just burns its own tanks. And if you watch it, the same thing happens, the engines fire up, that orange tank turns a nice crispy black, but regardless, it launched successfully and according to ULA, did deliver its payload into the correct orbit a few hours afterwards. Yeah, so here I was uh, sort of commiserating with folks during the, the launch of that, and uh, we were watching it on the ULA feed, and that uh, uh, all deltas, by the way, do that, and that is just due to the uh, the, the brophies of the sparklers that uh, go ahead and ignite to start the engine. There's some hydrogen buildup in there, and it flares up in this really, really exciting-looking uh, little burst of flame there. And uh, I believe, too, it also did that for um, EFT-1 when, when, when I was there, and, and that kind of scared the, you know, you know what out of a lot of people. Um, but, uh, that's basically standard operating procedure with Delta. In fact, I'm almost, almost sad to see that, that go in, in a couple of years, cause it's kind of going to be kind of, kind of neat. I don't know if, um, if Vulcan, is the, which is the new booster that, uh, ULA has, uh, waiting in the wings is going to do that, but, uh. Uh, Delta always puts on a, a pretty good show when it goes off. Um, this one had its also kind of fits and starts. Upper level winds kind of thwarted the first uh, uh, launch attempt, and then Thursday with the the of last week, the second second launch attempt turned into sort of a test lab for Murphy's law. You name it, it went wrong. Um, there were some latches on uh, uh, two swing arms that weren't functioning right, and there were a few other things. The range went red for a little bit uh, for a range safety issue, and a few other other things happened. And then the weather went red for a little bit, and then came back, and it was just uh, you know it was one of those those you know moments you want to just go ahead and take a potted plant and smash it up against a wall because it was just one of those one of those kind of launch attempts. Um, 
I mean, even during the last call when, when uh, the individual um, called hold, 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 you can hear the, the frustration in, in, in the gentleman's voice. It was just like, oh, boy, here we go. That uh, whole process took about four hours to deal with, and, uh, and unfortunately we ended up uh, holding for the day and holding, you know, going back and, and making sure that uh, we were good to go for Friday. But Friday turned out to be the, uh, the charm, and, and uh, we launched at uh, uh, 2.11 uh, p.m. Pacific time. And uh, everything went uh, went according to plan, and uh, the uh, NROL uh, 47 is up there right now doing what it needs to do for the National Reconnaissance Office. And uh, again, it's something that we'll never really know what it, exactly it's doing, but I'm sure it's something that the country needs right now, and I'm sure the folks that are working on it right now are are uh, you know commissioning it and and getting it ready for its uh, mission. So. Uh, you know, good luck to that, and uh, thanks for, for doing what you do for the country. Exactly. One more thing, too. Uh, United Launch Alliance also has a, uh, uh, and I want to mention this really, really quick, uh, they also have a habit of uh, dedicating the missions to uh, to folks that used to work at ULA. And this one was de- dedicated to a gentleman by the name of Mike Hewitt that had worked on Delta since its inception. And uh, so uh, it was a salute to a to a fallen uh, associate of ULA, and I just wanted to go ahead and add that. It's very nice the way that a lot of companies dedicate their vehicles. I know uh, uh, Orbital ATK does it as well a lot of times with their Cygnus craft and everything. And it's always nice to you know pay tribute to employees and other important people in the field. So exactly, I just wanted to go ahead and mention that real fast. And in addition, uh, before we continue with other launches that have happened, we do have another launch currently scheduled, and that is the Sabiros 4 mission. Sabiros, in case you're unaware, is a missile warning satellite. It is the fourth of that type, hence Sabiros 4. That will be launching aboard an Atlas V 411 rocket out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. That launch is currently scheduled for a 7.52 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 52 GMT launch, on Thursday Eastern Time, Friday GMT. I'll tell you, Hawaii could use this missile detection system after the recent (laughs) scare. Yeah, uh, SIBRS stands for Space-Based Infrared System, and this is, as you said, Sawyer, this is the fourth... Uh, vehicle to go up there. This is basically a, a, a missile uh, early warning system for uh, missiles just in case um, somebody decides to go ahead and launch something at the United States. This uh, this satellite will go ahead and detect that and give us an early warning. Um, the prime contractor is uh, Lockheed Martin with Northrop Grumman as the payload integrator. And uh, of course, this is operated by the uh, Air Force Space Command. This would be uh, mark the uh, uh, 125th mission overall since ULA is founded and uh, according to the uh, the website. And this would also be, you ready for this, the 75th Atlas V launch since the rocket's inaugural flight in 2002. That thing is a beast a workhorse a powerhouse you name it and again working off of a flawless record every single satellite that ula has launched has made it into space two of them have not made it into the correct orbit but they were still able to complete their missions calling them a success so to have a perfect launch record up till this point is impressive and 75 atlas 5 missions holy moly yeah, I, I mean, again, you're you're only as good as your last launch, and shoot, they're making it look easy, um, and indeed, it's not by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so uh, it, it's you know, quite a, a record they've they've put together, and and uh, uh, unparalleled in the industry. So, I mean, the only one that I could think of that, that comes fairly close is the Ariane 5, and there are only about maybe, what, two dozen Ariane 5 launches left before Ariane 6 comes online. So uh, we'll just you know wish uh, ULA all the best on the uh, upcoming Sibbers mission. And again, uh, if anybody's interested, go ahead and take a look at the ULA website, ulalaunch.com, for uh, more info on that, on that flight. Exactly. And, uh, again, that will be only the second launch so far out of Florida this year of many to come. Oh, yeah. 
All right, uh, so going back to some other launches that have happened recently, uh, you may recall we reported this way back in August of last year, um, the Indian rocket, the PSLV, uh, their Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, uh, had a little bit of an issue on their last launch. Well, thankfully they've gone ahead and fixed that and successfully uh, launched on January 11th, carrying 31 satellites into space. This had a really, really, really interesting uh, set of secondary payloads, and including uh, the first satellites for uh, uh, for some firms. I believe a uh, company from Finland is was represented on there. Uh, there was a few other other companies that launched their own constellation. Uh, there was a Canadian satellite operator that also had a payload on there. The Indians are, are really, really trying to, to get up there. Also, I believe Planetary Resources had a, uh, a, uh, a spacecraft fly on, on there as a, uh, a corporate demonstration. Uh, apparently, it's going to be going ahead. This particular uh, satellite is going to validate the, uh, the design of the other one that they flew. Um, and uh, they're going to make sure that everything is uh, is in place to go ahead and do asteroid prospecting. So uh, this was a watershed flight for for India, and uh, I, I'm just kind of amazed with what they've been able to do uh, so far. And uh, they're really going to be making a splash and really, really making a run at uh, uh, supporting the, the launch industry to come. They're going to be a force to deal with. I mean, I think they're going to really be in the way of uh of folks like spacex to to do things rather rather inexpensively and uh india is good you know is sure famous for for trying to go ahead and do this inexpensively exactly and you talk about they are going to be a force to be reckoned with already they have had 41 launches of the pslv and it's three different uh iterations and 38 of those 41 have been successful so i mean they're already forced to be reckoned with, and their biggest thing they were going for them is the fact that, like you mentioned, on this one they had 31 different satellites, and they've had that on a few missions where they're launching 11, 12, 20, 30 satellites all at once. So you may have fewer launches, but they're launching about as many satellites as some of the other big players like Russia and the United States. Yeah, there, there was one one flight, I believe, a couple of years back where they, they actually launched about 100 of these things. Um, I'm not too sure how many CubeSats actually got deployed and deployed successfully. It's something I, I don't know at the top of my head, but I do remember that uh, folks over in India were just saying, you know, yeehaw and all this, you know, look at us, 100 satellites all in one shot. And, I'm, uh, and you know, I thought that, that was a little bit of showbiz, to be honest. The exact number, by the way, was 104. Yeah, that's what I thought about. My thought was, you know... It, you know why? <laughs> um, you know I, I'm I'm going from the the Mr. Scott philosophy. You know the more you you overwork the plumbing, the easier it is to stop up the drain. Well, the more you try to stuff in there, you're gonna you're gonna stop up the drain. So um, I, I was a little I was a little dubious on that one, but uh, all in all, um, so far so good for India, and I wish them you know further success. They're gonna give uh, I think they're gonna give SpaceX a run for their money eventually. Uh, with getting payloads up there inexpensively the problem is how however um are you going to see i mean i could see european based uh companies trying to get that get get a payload in there and so on and i can see in the canadians sending a, a cubesat over there but are you really going to go ahead and get like say oh i don't know a canadian company to send a large you know, communication satellite that might have been built by, you know, MDA or Orbital or somebody like that over to India. You know, so I think SpaceX still will have a have a good uh, market there along with ULA and along with um, Orbital ATK. Honestly, if it's going to give anybody a run for their money, it's going to be either Roscosmos or... Um, oh, yeah, sure. Or the Arian, you know, Arian Space. Because they're the ones pretty much launching the European satellites now, so... Now there's another option with India, and if you've got a small satellite, you want to get it up cheap, you want to get it up pretty quick, you know, you may just go right over there to India instead. You hit it right on the head. This is going to give uh, ILS fits. Um, for those of you who don't know who ILS is, um, 
They are international law services. They are the brokerage house based in the United States that gives um, Russia uh, their flights. So in order to go ahead and if you want to book a, a flight through um, on, on a Russian uh, booster, you've got to go through uh, commercial. You've got to go through ILS to do it. And I'm sure, Sawyer, this is going to give folks like IL, ILS fits. Um, they've already had some, <laughs> Russia's already had their problems, as, we, as we've really reported here. And uh, this, is, this is a viable alternative to that, and a viable, inexpensive alternative to that. So they, you know, India's going to have a market, folks. They're going to cut into the market share. Just how deeply they're going to cut into, you know, uh, Ariane Space's market share or even SpaceX's market share, we'll just have to see. Something definitely we're going to have to keep a close eye on. We are going to have to keep a close eye on India's space program there because they've got a lot going for them. And let's not forget Sawyer, too. Waiting in the wings um, is uh, the Orbital ATK uh, uh, next-gen launch vehicle, which apparently, uh, I, I don't know if we've reported this previously, but they've also been, you know, the Air Force likes what they see, and they're going they're probably going to greenlight that further. So we're going to have another, another player in there. Um, Orbital ATK will probably get in there with that vehicle. And uh, which is really, really designed to U.S. Air Force specification. Uh, but I'm sure that it, too, will be able to go ahead and, and get business away from from other vehicles and because of its performance. So in the next few years, we've got uh, Falcon Heavy coming in, Orbital ATK's new one, ULA's new Vulcan, the Ariane 6. Uh, I believe Russia may be working on a new one. There's so many different rockets coming out. That yeah. was it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's the game is changing out there. And again, you know, it's great that we've got these companies bringing down the price. But now it all is going to come down to, you know, what fits the need of your satellite. And I think India is going to play a part in that, as well as all of the new launch vehicles that are now, you know, sort of being designed with specific customers in mind, like you were saying with Orbital. Uh, now, while we're talking about overseas launches, we do want to mention very quickly um, that Rocket Lab, which is actually a U.S.-based company, is scheduled to launch their mission called Still Testing out of New Zealand. Uh, that is aboard their Electron rocket. They've been trying to get this test off since the end of 2017, but due to different delays and issues, they've been pushing it back. The latest date that we've had for that is January 19th at 8.30 Eastern Time, which is 2.30 p.m. on the 20th local time in New Zealand. So... Uh, we've been reporting on them. Their last mission almost made it into orbit super close. Uh, and then we'll see if this one makes it. Yeah, fingers crossed for them. I'll be keeping an eye on that. And uh, if anybody is uh, uh, interested in, in finding out more, check out the website. I believe it's uh, rocketlab.com. And um, take a look at what they're up to because this is also exciting stuff. Uh, they are going up against you know somebody like... Uh, like uh, uh, Vector, uh, they with with their launch vehicle, um, Vector Two is a is a U.S. based company. They uh, will have their uh, their launch facility over in uh, in Georgia, primarily, um, and uh, we'll we'll just be keeping an eye on on that. But uh, again, the um, as you had pointed out, Sawyer, the you know, this is a New Zealand ba based entity. Uh, it uh, will be firing up uh, uh, its uh, main engine, uh, the Rutherford engine. I uh, believe this is a, if memory serves, or this is a, a, a kerosene-based, an oxygen kerosene-based uh, pump-fed engine. I'm looking at the uh, uh, press release here, and I believe it's the first engine of its kind, according to what I'm reading, uh, to use three, 3D printing for all of its primary components. So we're, we're dealing with something that's really, really uh, a 21st century engine here. So it, it's, it's going to be kind of exciting to see this thing work. And, and hopefully we'll get to orbit this time. And uh, wishing Electron uh, good luck. It's going to be a busy week for us in, in space. And, and Sawyer, I remember throwing you a, a note uh, a while back ago on Twitter basically saying, gee, remember when everybody was saying that we didn't know what we were going to talk about when shuttle ended? Well, surprise. Oh, that that is absolutely <laughs> for sure. And uh, someone the other day just posted a picture of the press site from STS-135, and uh, I was thinking back on that exact moment of, 
you know, going, all right, is this the end of us? And, well, here we are in season 10, so obviously we're not done yet. No, we're not done yet, and there's a lot more space to talk about. And and just a reminder, that was only season three of Talking Space when Shuttle ended. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, again, there's a lot more space to talk about here, and, and we'll be uh, we'll be there to... To, to go ahead and present present everything that's been going on because it's it's really really an exciting time uh, in uh, in in the space launch business and hopefully we're gonna go ahead and and let folks know what's going on out there from all the all the major players and and some of the new kids on the block that are coming up like uh, like uh, rocket lab so fasten yourself seat belts folks hang around with us it's gonna be a fun ride exactly because there's another you know, country that we haven't mentioned in terms of launch provider, and that's China. Yes. They're in the game, too, with their Long March rocket. In fact, uh, they just recently launched a Long March. Uh, one of those launches carried uh, Algeria's first satellite, Alcomsat-1. Uh, but what caught the attention of everybody was uh, some video that came out after a Long March launch. So apparently, uh, as the launch happened... It proceeded normally. Everything went as planned. Uh, one of the four rocket boosters from the Long March 3B crashed, as expected, just back to Earth. Unlike Russia, which does it over completely empty plains of Kazakhstan, and unlike the U.S., which does it over the oceans to dispose of it, China does it over rural villages. Now, according to China, they have stated that they typically warn all of the villages in advance and urge them to evacuate whenever there is a launch, However, if you take a look in the video that was posted to Twitter, um, you'll see that's typically not the case, as there are people literally standing on the roof as a piece of flaming booster comes crashing down. You see it land, you see a giant fireball, and there are also images of the flaming piece of booster in the middle of a roadway in a village in China. Now, I've had people ask me, did the rocket blow up? No, the rocket worked just fine. Is this unusual? Unfortunately, no, this is standard operating procedure for China's space program. They will dispose of their vehicles right near nearby villages, and it's a miracle that nobody was injured or at least has been reported as injured through China's news agencies. Yeah, Sawyer, the, the image that you're talking about, I believe the uh, website Mashable also posted posted this thing. Um, this individual went ahead and posted the uh, uh, the film that you're talking about, and this thing just kind of, you know, you you hear a lot of cheering in the background um, on on the image, and then you see the the booster kind of sailing inward, and it just plows right in the side of a mountain in a in a good visual range uh, to the uh, to this village, and it's like everybody's applauding, going yay, yeehaw, and all this. And, uh, you know, it disappears in, in this cloud of orange, orange smoke. And we all know in the space business what that is, folks. That is unspent fuel, uh, specifically hydrazine. And you don't want to be smelling that. That's bad. Um, and, uh, you know, Lord knows what it's done to that area over there. But also Lord knows to what it's done to anybody that's breathing in that stuff. Um and I, I really hope that at some point China takes the, and I'm going to mention SpaceX here again, takes the SpaceX route at least with one of their boosters and goes ahead and tries to, to fly these things out on a landing site somewhere. Uh, because th this has got to stop, folks. I mean, I, I'm the, the, my, this is my editorial for the night. I mean, this is kind of irresponsible, I think, uh, where, where you're literally flying this thing in near you know, population centers. I mean, some people may go ahead and say, well, yeah, you know, there, there are some, there's some launches where folks are evacuated from, from their homes because of X, Y, and Z, and we don't want anything to, to happen in case something goes wrong and we have a bad day. But uh, that's a little different. This is something where you've got a booster just plowing into, you know, theoretically it could have plowed in, into a town. And to me, that that that's <laughs> I don't know that, that that's that's irresponsible. I mean, right now we have a, a Chinese space station that we don't even know where this where this thing is coming in. We you know within a a reasonable deal. The Chinese are basically saying that they've lost uh, 
lost control of it, although now there's one report saying that, well, they might have it. I don't know. But uh, it, it just seems to be the M.O. And everybody says, oh, we should work with China. We should work with China. We should work, work with China. And I'm like, really? Uh, it, it just, to me, says that they kind of hold where they put these things in low regard. And they, they kind of hold the, the population in low regard, too. Um, and if you're going to expect, I guess, in a, in a totalitarian society, you could go ahead and do pretty much whatever you you please and really don't really care about the support of the people where here i guess you know a, a a good vigorous space program needs the support of the people i guess that's the difference that's my sort of my editorial comment for tonight but uh again this has got to stop folks you can't just go ahead and plow these things in, in into a side of a mountain near a population center it's just ridiculous yeah and again like i was saying this is standard operating procedure this is nothing normal it's just it's the first time that someone really captured it on video because they try and evacuate people but don't always and that someone actually managed to post it to twitter which if you just search for chinese rocket you can find it if not there's an article written by lauren grush over the verge that's got the videos embedded in it you can certainly see it um, and I just want to correct myself, the uh, the previous mission in December was a Long March 3B rocket. This one was a Long March 2D rocket. It was still three-dimensional, but it was a 2D <laughs> Anyway, um, it launched an Earth-watching satellite back on January 12th. Uh, that was actually their third launch in four days, according to the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, or CASC, basically their version of NASA there. Yeah, but again, folks, you know, you've got to really, really dispose of these things properly and dispose of these things correctly. Uh, it, I mean, this is not like the old Tom Lehrer song, you know, when the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? It's not my department. No, this you can't do that, folks. You know, you really have to go ahead and make sure that these things, if, if you're not going to go ahead and, and, and refly them like SpaceX is doing, at least they're disposed of in a, in a place where where they're not going to do any harm to anyone. I mean, they might startle some fish if you splash them down in the middle of the, the Indian Ocean or something, but you can't just, you know, oh, well, boom, you know, startle a couple of, bir couple of fried birds and, and some wildlife. Oh, well, darn. It just doesn't, you know, plus, you know, who cares, you know, about, about the people in these towns nearby? You know, who knows what, what kind of fumes their, their, their lungs are filling up with? Come on, folks, let's, you know, let's, let's get on the sticker. Exactly. It's it's just grossly irresponsible, and yet they're, you know, a major player in the space industry, which means this isn't stopping anytime soon. Again, they're reported three launches in four days. How many different villages does that mean are getting rocket parts raining down on them, you know, multiple days a week now? I'm wondering if we there have been some very, very close calls we don't know about. I'm sure there have. I'm sure there have been some not just close calls, but some actual incidents. I mean, we've seen video way in the past but we've seen video before of rocket parts landing in people's living rooms in china yeah. so i wouldn't be surprised if people have been hit with rocket parts and i wouldn't be surprised if like you mentioned people unknowingly breathe in these hydrazine and tetrazine and other you know poisonous substances and get sick from it and don't even know it so yeah exactly that's one of the things about china is it's very secretive and you know as much as we think that we're secretive here with like some of these NRO missions and Zuma and stuff like that is nothing compared to China in that they just announced, Oh, they launched. And you know, most of the time days after it happened, they've only live streamed one or two launches ever. The rest it's, Oh, you have to trust us. This is what happened. Yeah. And that's just not the way to fly. And, and again, if you're, you're you want us to work with you and you want us to go ahead and foster some trust, Hey, you got to open up a little bit more. And, and this is why I always say, you know, I've had arguments with folks. Oh, yeah, we have to cooperate with China. Really? Why? You know, well, they're beating us. Well, are they? I, I, I have my doubts. And just as what I'm seeing, you know, if you're going to hold your own population in low regard, do I really want to work with you? I mean, I'm with you on this. It's, yeah, grossly irresponsible is the only phrase I can keep coming up with. Yeah. So. I could think of a few more, but I'm I'm there there. We lose our clean tech. <laughs> Fair point. Yep. All right. Uh, so <laughs> that is just about going to wrap things up for us here. We'll end it on that, but we do have to mention two very sad passings that happened since the last time that we did a news show. 
the first one was back on December 21st of 2017. The father of the EMU, as he's been nicknamed, Bruce McCandless, passed away. Uh, you may not know that name, but I'm sure you've seen the picture. If you ever seen the image of the man in the spacesuit floating out above the Earth with nothing around him, that's Bruce McCandless in that photo. That was taken uh, during one of the first test missions back in 1984 when they actually test out the manned maneuvering unit, or the MMU, which is basically like a little jetpack that was to be used in case of an emergency. If you're doing a spacewalk and you float away, you can make it back to the shuttle or to the station or whatever the case may be. He was the first one to test it out, and that image has become infamous and seen around the world in history books everywhere, and that is him. And... If you ever had the honor of meeting him, he was a kind, caring gentleman, gave you, you know, more than happy to give you the time of day and his entire life story along with it. <laughs> and uh, he he will sadly be missed. Yeah, he was one of the, the more colorful individuals, too, in the uh, uh, Mission Operations Control Center during uh, during the Apollo days as well. And uh, from what I, I understand, he was quite a character and uh, the world is uh, diminished without him. Uh, his... Uh, uh, his funeral mass was today, too, um, on, as uh, we record this. Uh, again, it's Tuesday, January 16th. So uh, good tailwinds to you, sir, and and thank you for everything you've done. Um, his MMU has gone on to become the safer, uh, but it that basically performs the same task Sawyer as the MMU did. Uh, but because of his work... Um, you know, space, space flight, and uh, and uh, extravehicular activities have become just a little bit of a of a safer exercise. And if McCandless is going to be remembered for anything, it's going to be that contribution. Absolutely. And in addition, we can't forget some of his other accomplishments uh, on STS forty one B, where he used that MMU. That was also the first mission where Challenger landed back at the Kennedy Space Center back in nineteen eighty four. And in addition, he launched again on STS-31 in 1990, which, if you wonder why that sounds familiar, that's because that was the mission that deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. He was also part of the fifth class of astronauts labeled the Original 19 by astronaut John Young, which brings us, unfortunately, to our second obituary that we do have to mention, and that was the great John Young, the astronaut's astronaut, passed away January 5th, 2018. Uh, the question, as opposed to what John Young did, the better thing to ask is what didn't he do? He flew aboard Gemini in Gemini 3 and 10. He walked on the moon on Apollo 16. And uh, most notably, of recent at least, he flew on the first ever orbital test flight of the space shuttle. Which, if you remember when they were testing out the space shuttle, they didn't do any unmanned test missions. The first ever test flight of the shuttle was manned, and the man in charge, the commander, was John Young, along with Bob Griffin. He also flew one more time on STS-9, making him a veteran of six space flights over the course of three different NASA programs. Yes, yeah, sir. He was also responsible for one of the better practical jokes in the uh, in the space business. He, uh, when he flew on Gemini three, which was the first flight of the Gemini spacecraft, he and uh, the late uh, Virgil. I uh, Gus Grissom. Uh, he was the one who passed Gus all of a sudden a corned beef sandwich out of his pocket and uh, uh, asked if he wanted the bite. And unfortunately, the bread was a little bit on the crumbly side and it really wasn't all that great. And I think what he was trying to do was prove that, hey, you don't have to go ahead and, and chew food from a from a straw or chew food or eat food from a from a toothpaste tube. You could go ahead and, and eat regular food on orbit. Unfortunately, he did get admonished because the, the corned beef sandwich was not supposed to be on board. And, well, you know, I believe a reprimand was placed in his record and all this other stuff. But uh, it, that, that corned beef sandwich survives him. I think it's somewhere in a, in a museum someplace. <laughs> um, but that sandwich is a piece of history. And obviously that admonishment did nothing because he became one of only three people to fly to the moon twice. And he also, at one point, was the chief of the astronaut office for more than ten years. Yeah, I mean, one one of the one of my favorite quotes of John Young was was from uh, at, you know, his just before STS one, and uh, people asked if he was a little nervous, and I use this as an example uh, for people that uh, are are really really you know saying, oh, I'm so nervous about this. I'm like, look, 
um, John Young, just before uh, SDS One, said the following: Look, you know, if if you're about ready to walk into this this thing for the very first time, nobody's flown on board. It has all this liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, and you're sitting un underneath it. And if you're not just a little bit nervous, you don't understand the problem. And uh, what 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 he was trying to say in there was, yeah, I do, you know understand the problem, do it, you know. Understand being nervous is okay. It means you 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 know the situation. You know what you're into. You know, work with it. Do it. And uh, you know, just just go with it, and uh, and you'll be okay. Um, so uh, that that's one of the things. You understand the gravity of the situation, and and that's that's something. Another uh, word of wisdom from uh, from John Young. But uh, I love what um, Robert Lightfoot had said um, about. Uh, about him. He said, quote, uh, astronaut John Young's storied career spanned three generations of spaceflight. We will stand on the shoulders as we look toward the next human frontier, close quote. Um, and I think we will be standing on his shoulders. John will go ahead and we'll, he'll, he'll help us get to, back to, uh, to where he explored, back over to the moon and help us get on to Mars. And uh, uh, he leaves behind one heck of a legacy, and um, it's going to be—he's going to be one of the individuals that uh, uh, we are going to be remembering for a very, very long time in the annals of space ex exploration. So, again, sir, Godspeed to you, and thank you for everything you've done for your country. Exactly. Uh, and fun fact about him—he has over fifteen thousand hours flying in planes, including ninety-two hundred hours in T-38s. And 835 hours total in space over his six space flights. And, you know, was the first one to actually fly the space shuttle. So Yeah, and he and I also shared a birthday, so <laughs> <laughs> we did. <laughs> but, yes, he will also be missed when he passed away. He was 87 years old. So with that, I think that brings this episode to its conclusion. Season 10 is officially underway. And I'd like to thank you for joining me here, Gene McCulka. It's been an honor and a privilege, and I'm looking forward to this year very, very much so. We've got a lot planned. We've got a lot going on. Please hang around with us. Uh, it's going to be a fun year. Grab the popcorn. Enjoy the, enjoy the podcast. We'll be happy to go ahead and bring space flight to your living room. Hang in there with us. Absolutely. To your living room, to your car, wherever you may listen to us. Uh, we're there for you. You're available on multiple ways to listen, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, as well as listening to us on Astronomy FM on Friday evenings into Saturdays. And uh, you can always check us out. You can always send us messages because we've got a lot coming for you this year. We've got some launches scheduled that we're planning on going to. We have some amazing interviews, some already recorded, some set to record, and it is going to be quite the year. And uh, Season 10 is going to be a fun one. We hope you'll stick with us through it. Until our next episode, though, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.